Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. I like stories about how people pull themselves together, how people pick themselves back up after life has knocked them down. I think that's a, a hard and brave and impressive thing to do. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas. I'm Andy Langer. This week on the show, Houston author Catherine Center. Her just-released instant New York Times bestseller, Things You Save in a Fire, is racking up spots on lists of the best, most buzzed-about books of the summer, from The Washington Post to Hollywood Reporter, USA Today to Good Housekeeping. The book focuses on a female firefighter who makes a name for herself in an Austin firehouse, but is quickly summoned to Boston, where she's called upon to care for her ailing mother and winds up facing hazing, discrimination, and genuine danger while falling into forbidden love with another firefighter. Center's ability to balance wit and suspense in what the Dallas Morning News calls a soul-nourishing manner has become her calling card. And on our podcast, we talk about her TEDx talk on empathy, discrimination in the age of Me Too, and the pros and cons of what's become known as women's fiction. This is Catherine Center. Welcome. So, not in this building, not in the last 20 years or so, <laughs> but you were a Texas Monthly intern. I was. I was. It was a very um, exciting beginning for me. It was when I was in college. Okay. And I went to college in New York, but I'm from Houston, and I wound up spending the summer in Austin. Um, and, and I have no idea what I did as an intern at Texas Monthly. I cannot remember. Because that was going to be my question. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure it Did was you collate? very important. I'm Did sure you transcribe? I'm sure These are was, things interns do? I think there was Xeroxing involved. Okay. I had a um, an idea that I was going to try to write a story for you guys. And I researched the story because we knew about this, this Texas character um, who had a great story. And I thought if I could write it, it would be something that people would want to read about. But I was 21 and... I did not successfully make that happen. Who was the character and what was the story? That's a good question. He was, um, there was a man who lived in Sealy, Texas uh, in the 50s named Forrest Ward. And a lot of this is sort of legend, so I'm not sure how true it all is, but I was trying to figure it out at the time. And he had a girlfriend, if I'm remembering right, who was, I think, African-American, and he was white, and she got roughed up by some guys in the town. I'm not sure exactly what happened to her, but I don't think it was good. Mm-hmm. And he was enraged, and he went into town and he shot one of the guys. And I found out about this story because we have a friend who lives out there, and she showed me where the bullet hole still was in the door frame of one of the old buildings in Sealy. And I went and saw it during my research phase. And... Um, he was the son of a land baron, and so he did not wind up going to jail for shooting this guy. The guy did not die. He wound up paralyzed. 
Instead of sending him to jail, they banished him to his father's property on the Brazos River, uh, basically forever. And so he kind of spent the rest of his life living down in the river bottom, near the water. And by the time we met him, because his property kind of was adjacent to a property my mom owns, um, I think he'd done a, maybe a fair bit of drinking, I'm guessing, and he he frequently was naked out on his front porch and he wore holsters and they and had loaded pistols in the holsters and if kids like came down the lane he would shoot at them if anybody came down the lane and so when i was growing up uh at our family's ranch the big advice from the parents was always don't go down by forest ward's house he will shoot you um so we didn't uh but that was that was the story about him that he you know, had kind of been banished and I think got very lonely and he wound up keeping all his important papers in the refrigerator and... If I had a time machine (laughs) and I was an editor of Texas Monthly, (laughs) I would buy that story. Thank you. I felt like it was a great story. It's possible that I was not um, terribly aggressive about selling that story. I may not have been a good pitcher at the time. That was a pretty good pitch right there. Oh, thank you. And I could barely remember it. I was fishing it out of my memory. So other than the unsuccessful story and the not remembering what you did, it was the best summer of your life. It was, although I will tell you that um, one of my top five lifetime humiliations happened at Texas Monthly. So y'all are kind of in a very special place in my heart. I had bought um, a dress at a farmer's market that I thought was very pretty, and I wore it to work here for the first time. As one does. As one does. And, you know, it wasn't too fancy. It was fine for work. But um, I worked all day, and then at the end of the day, I was walking home, and I caught my reflection in a very shiny, reflective building, and I realized that the dress was see-through and that I had been at work all day in a dress that you could totally see through. And that was um, shocking to me and very embarrassing. And I have bounced back now, 20 years later. It also says something about the people you worked with, none of whom, women included, pointed this out to you. Nobody said anything. Yeah, maybe they thought I was just very daring. Do you think there's only a code now? Is that a evolutionary thing that 25 years later somebody would tell you, wouldn't they? Isn't that part of a woman-to-woman code at this point? You know, I I think it is possible that the ladies in the office thought that I knew that about the dress, you know, and that I was embracing it. And they didn't want to have a confrontation as opposed to giving you the heads up. Exactly. So um, it's all fine. I'm sure no one remembers but me. (laughs) I hope no one remembers but me. All right, so you're married to a a guy who used to be a paramedic. Yes. A lot of this book, well, there's paramedics, but there's also firemen. A lot of this book draws on those things in pretty detailed ways down to the science of both the medicine and the firefighting. This is a book you clearly had to do a bunch of research on. Yes. Which A means asking your husband and B means asking the Houston Fire Department? Yes, that's true. Um, yes, I was very nervous to write this story because I knew just enough to know that I really didn't know enough. Um, and my, my husband, when I first met him, was working as a paid paramedic for, the, um, for Harris County. 
um, in Houston. And uh, then he was thinking about going to medical school, but he wound up changing his mind. And he became a middle school teacher instead. As one does. Yeah. Um, but he never uh, he never lost that love of helping people and that he loves sirens and he loves gear and he loves firefighting. And so he continued to volunteer. So he's been, you know, helping in some capacity in emergency services ever since I met him in 1994. And um, so he was a very good source for all the stuff. He has a million stories. I mean, heartbreaking stories, hilarious stories, super scatological stories, uh, stomach-turning ones. I mean, he he's seen it all. And he's he's a great storyteller. So I've heard them all a million times. But I had never listened to them in such an intense way because I write my stories in first person and I always try to kind of climb inside the skin of the person who's narrating that story and I try to really imagine what it feels like to be them. So a method acting kind of situation. So that it feels authentic, so that it feels um, visceral and true. And so it's kind of one thing to listen casually to a funny story that your husband is telling at the dinner table. And it's kind of another thing to try and dig in and imagine yourself in that moment and sort of, you know, harness all your capabilities to sort of see it and feel it. And so that's what I did. So that was actually a very fun thing to do because um, I don't want to say I wasn't paying attention before, but I, I wasn't paying attention at that level. So that was one big piece of the research, and it was sort of surprisingly intimate and fun to kind of talk in that intense kind of way. And then the other thing that I did was I um, I found a number of firehouses in Houston who were willing to let me come and hang out with them. They would tour me around the firehouse. Actually, one guy, when I got to the firehouse and he was bringing me inside, he got on the speaker system that went across the whole house and he just kind of like made this announcement to the guys um guys lady in the house just to let them know to put on whatever clothes they needed to put on (laughs) so it was fun i i felt very shy about it it was very nerve-wracking in a lot of ways because i know that that is a closed society you know that's a it's very fraternal yes But it's also, those folks are very bonded. You know, they work together and they see terrible things that the rest of the world never, ever has to see. And so I just knew that that wasn't a place where I would know my way around physically or emotionally. But they were very kind and they let me sit at the table and they told me stories and they were very candid and they were funny. And I loved everything about it, actually. It was really great. And you met women that were firefighters in Houston. I did. I interviewed some female firefighters as well to get a sense of sort of the gender component because you would know that there would have to be one. Um, So I tried to be very diligent about that. I imagine there's still a stigma around that. I mean, there is in the book. Yes. There is a lot of resistance to her in the book. Yeah, there is. Being a woman who's interested in firefighting. Is that how it is? Yeah, I think that's probably how it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think there's an assumption that women are weaker and that they're not going to be able to do the big, you know, masculine stuff that firefighting requires. And and that's true on some level. Um, 
But the flip side of that is women are also smaller, so it means that they're less likely to cause a roof to fall in, and there's nooks and crannies they can crawl into that maybe the big guys can't get into, so there's maybe upsides to it. But getting along, living in that world, basically means repressing everything that makes you female. You ha- I think you have to be careful about it. I mean, from my from my research, it looks like you really have to not run around with lots of lipstick on and, you know, jangly earrings and... Well, I'm not even... I, I'm I'm not the one saying that's what makes a, a woman... No, a, nor am I, actually. Right. <laughs> but there's clearly, yep. like, you've got to be one of the guys. Yeah. And anything that makes you not one of the guys is something you're supposed to repress. Yeah, I mean, I think that seems to be the general advice. I'm sure there are people who have found ways to kind of work around that. Um, I do remember my husband telling me about a day when he was doing some firefighting stuff with a whole bunch of guys, and a woman came in to participate, and all the guys immediately assumed she was going to be terrible, and then she was better than everybody, you know, and they were all just astonished. And, you know, my husband was kind of delighted that she had come in and showed everybody what she was made of. And so that was part of what sparked the idea for this character in the book. Her name's Cassie, because she is really, really good. She was raised by a single dad who didn't really want to talk about his feelings. He just wanted to shoot hoops in the backyard. And she got very, very good at a lot of guy stuff. So it was kind of easier for her than it would be for, say, me to kind of step into that role. We'll go back to some of the resistance in a minute. But is what you do quote, women's fiction. Is that even a thing? (laughs) Like, I see that attached to your name. Yeah. And I'm not sure that I even know what that is. Of course, I didn't know that YA novels until recently weren't just PG versions of... I I didn't realize it was about the age of the character. So, all that said, are you a women's fiction writer? Um... Yes. I mean, I think that those labels are helpful when they allow you to find the books that you're looking for. Okay. Right? So if you don't try to read my books because you think they're only for women, then that's a that's a disadvantage to the label. But basically, women's fiction, and I agree with you that there's something not right about the terminology, um, women's fiction is fiction that is told from the point of view of a woman. So this is similar to the young adult thing. Yeah, yeah. In that young adult novels are told by young adults. The the main character is a young adult. Yes, yes. I always thought it was just that they had PG themes and that it was the difference between a PG book and a regular adult book. It winds up you can have adult themes in YA novels. That's something I learned a couple podcasts ago. That's true. And you can have a lot of adult activities in YA novels as well. Right, which I had no idea. Right. I figured those were safe for the kids. (laughs) Not really. No, not so much. Sometimes quite shocking. Um, So, yeah, so it's it's a point of view thing, and it's, it's... it's a question of who the novel is asking you to identify with the most, you know? And, I mean, I think our default setting in society is to have a kind of guy's perspective on this. I actually did um, a TEDx talk about some of these ideas because um, from time to time, I feel that our culture has a little bit of an empathy problem with women. I think it's hard for all of us, women included in our culture, sometimes to put ourselves in women's shoes. 
And I think one of the ways that we learn how to have empathy for other people is through stories and through storytelling. You know, you when when a storyteller does a good job of telling the story, you're not just sort of walking through the story sort of next to the main character. You're not just with them. You kind of merge with that character and you sort of go through the story as them. Because you're trying to think about what they might do next. Yeah, the, it, it's like the story just absorbs you into the point of view character. Right. And when they're worried about something, you're worried about something. And when they're happy, you're happy. And when they're hopeful, you're hopeful. And that's what stories, I mean, that's the magic of stories. That's what we love about them. It's so fun to kind of cross the boundaries of our own skin and spend a little time as somebody else. But Statistically, we're much more likely to write a male point of view character than we are to write a female one. And there's all kinds of ideas in the world that, you know, like in in kids publishing, there's this idea that boys won't read stories about girls, but girls will read stories about boys. And so if you put in a male main character in your story, you are... Um, going to have a wider audience to appeal to. You know, basically the idea is that if you write about a main character who's female, you're cutting your audience in half, your potential audience. This um, is the same thing that happens in country music, by the way. Is it? Because me- the theory is men don't want to hear women on the radio. That they don't want to hear songs from women because it's a woman point of view. That's really interesting. And so the programmers don't program as many songs from women because they don't want to alienate the male audience who will listen to men and women will also listen to men. I had no idea about that. It's yeah. the exact same thing. That's yeah. exactly the same thing. Okay. And my theory on it all is that empathy and that ability to sort of put yourself in another person's place is a learned skill. I think it's something you have to practice. I think it's very hard to do and I think the more you practice, the better you are. And I will say I think our culture doesn't ask guys to do it as much as it asks women to do it. I mean, women imagine what it's like to be guys all the time. We are constantly putting ourselves in the shoes of main characters who are male, and we are rooting for them. You know, we want them to get whatever it is they want, even if it's the girl. You know, and it's not... It doesn't threaten our identities to do that. It doesn't change who we are. It just makes us better at imagining who other people are, you know. But the easiest way to have me not read me being a man, mm-hmm. not read a book, is to tell me it's women's fiction or that it's a beach read. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. So, I mean, those are limiting things. That's true. But the majority of readers in this country are actually women. They have the book clubs. and Yes, and there are women who really, really want beach reads. And so if you're looking for a beach read and you know that a certain book is a beach read, that helps you find that book. But I agree. It's it's tricky territory, you know, and everything's always kind of shifting around. All right. Speaking of tricky territory. So we had Chandler Baker a couple weeks ago who wrote this book, The Whisper Network. It's also, like yours, a New York Times bestseller. She's your competitor. She lives here. <laughs> Uh, it is a beach read, uh, but it's all about Me Too. Okay. And this, at its core, is about believing women or not believing women. I mean, this is a Me Too novel as well. Mine. Yours. Yes. There's a little bit of but that. But yours doesn't seem to be marketed that way, doesn't seem to be thematically hung that way, except for when you open it up and read it and you're like, this is a Me Too novel. Yeah. Was that 
part of the thinking going in? I don't know if we ever explicitly talked about that. Um, It is true that Cassie, the main character, has had some very bad things happen to her. And it's very much a story about healing and forgiveness. But we didn't really foreground that part of it. And I'm not sure why other than I think I try very hard to write novels that are hopeful. You know, I, I struggle myself to believe in hope. I struggle myself to feel optimistic about the chances that the human race is gonna pull it together. And so I try to write stories where we get to the end and people have found ways to access the best parts of themselves. And so I think it's possible that if we had focused too much on that part of the story, because it's really only one component of the story, See, I, I know you have... wrote this, but I disagree. You disagree? All right. Well, let's hear it. <laughs> and I'm trying not to give away pieces Too of the much, story. Right. But not only is she a survivor of an incident, mm-hmm. which falls clearly under what we know as Me Too, etc. Mm-hmm. But the way she's treated working in this predominantly male environment down to whether she's believed Mm -hmm. in the end. Mm -hmm. Those are all Me Too themes as well, which means it's the entirety of the book to me. (laughs) I mean, you're passing it off as it's just at the beginning. I think it runs through the whole thing. Well, it does. It does run through the whole thing. Um, But I actually came to that part of the story very late. I came to that part of the story almost by accident. It kind of slowly appeared through drafts. It was never my intention to write specifically about, you know, violence against women. Um, and it's true that, you know, the the guys in the firehouse, at first they really don't want her there. And they're hard on her. But of course, firefighters are hard on everybody. You know, they're hard on anybody who's new and anybody who doesn't fit into this closed culture. But she's an outsider and a woman. Yes. She's a Texan and she's had to move during the process of the story to this firehouse outside of Boston. So she's not from the region and she's a woman and she's new. And um, firefighters do a lot of hazing and testing. And that's part of, I mean, it's kind of like the military. It's part of how you prove that you have a right to be there. And um, there's a certain toughness that comes with being willing to go through that stuff. And then once you get through it, there's a bond that you get on the other side once you've sort of survived it all. And I think these guys, they were doing it to the rookie too, the male member of the crew who's new. But but there's definitely a gendered component to it. There's no question. I'm, I'm very aware of that kind of thing. I mean, you can't be a woman in Texas and not be aware of that stuff. Um, but I think... I think she came in with a certain set of expectations about who they were going to be, and they showed themselves to be more well-intentioned than they might have come off in the end. I mean, I think life is messy, and I think these characters are messy, you know, and they have good intentions, and they're trying to do the right thing in certain ways, and there are ways in which they're trying to help her, but they don't realize that's holding her back or closing her out. And I think that's true to life. You know, we're we're messy. I mean, I don't mean to be reductive calling it a Me Too novel. Right. But I think it's interesting, and my sample size is small. It's <laughs> the book we had a couple weeks ago and this one. <laughs> that in this moment, there are books about sort of this moment. Yeah. That are very sure. modern. Sure. 
in the storytelling because this is what's going on in the newspaper. Yeah. But these books are written a year, year and a half out by the time we get them. I, I just think it's an interesting trend of two <laughs> that you. I'm looking yeah. at <laughs> that that I think is probably a trend. Well, I Which mean, is great. if you are a female in this country right, and you are in any way paying attention to what's going on around you. Then it's going to seep in. You've got to grapple with that stuff somehow. Right. I mean, it's not something you can ignore. This is your life and it's your daughter's lives. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's in a lot of women's consciousness and we're trying to cope with it and figure it out and come up with a framework for how to think about it in different ways. Um, so, it's yeah, it's in the novel. But again, I'm always trying to write stories that are, I mean, I think of my books as sort of half tragedy, half comedy, and then all mushed together. So I'm trying to write stories that have authentic struggles and hard things and grief and sorrow and um, genuine human difficulty. But I'm also trying to make sure that I write stories that are a pleasure and that make you laugh and that remind you about all the joy that there is, even amongst all the craziness and the sorrow and the injustice and the darkness. And I'm trying to find this very delicate balance between talking about both of those things. I mean, I could... Does that run through all six or seven of these books? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I do. Is that the through line? Yeah. I think that comedy is my coping mechanism for all the darkness in the world. And, you know, I think we tend to think of comedy at one end of the spectrum and tragedy at the other and like they're two totally different things but for me they just live shoulder to shoulder I think we invented comedy because of tragedy right like squirrels don't need comedy because they don't know they're going to get run over but we know you know we know that we know exactly how our lives are going to end up we're all going to die you know and that's dark and it's a truth that everybody has to struggle with in some way or another and so I'm trying to accept that, not deny it or ignore it. I'm trying to accept all the darkness in the world and then also find ways at the same time to savor whatever light comes through. So, yeah, that's what I'm kind of trying to do. When we publish these, we we take a a pull quote to put next to your name, and it's just going to be Catherine Center. We're all going to (laughs) die. I've already got that picked out. Perfect. That sums it all up. (laughs) And they'll get a completely different book than they thought when they end up buying it. How much do you plot out? I mean, because you said sort of that twist or or the the Me Too part of this came to you later. You don't know where it's going to end up when you start? I know certain things. Okay. Um, I believe in outlines. I mean, I always write an outline, but then I just never follow it. Okay. Um, And for me, an outline does not involve Roman numerals. It's basically kind of a list of things that I would like to see happen. I generally know what I think the the broad arc that each character is going to have is going to be. There are things people need to learn and things people need to figure out. And my job as the writer is to put elements in the story right in front of them in their path that they have to grapple with to help them learn those things. And so I feel like it's actually foolish to just start a story and not have any idea what you're trying to accomplish or where you're trying to go. Because if you want your story to be tight and muscular and streamlined, and if you want it to be a page-turning story, which I very much do because I have a mortal fear of boring people... Um, you have to make sure that every single thing you put into that story is there for a reason 
and that it's leading us someplace that will be gratifying in some way that it's going to pay off somehow in the end. And so I'm very careful to at least think I know where I'm going. But then, of course, what happens is you have a very vague idea of what the story is going to be. But then once you get inside it and you're walking through it in a specific way, you start seeing all kinds of things that you didn't see before. And then those things work their way into the story and then they change the story. See, I've never done this before, but I would see myself painting myself into a corner with an outline and then not being able to get there and spending months trying to figure out how I get from A to C with B being this thing that I stuck myself. Are you saying you think you'd write a like a, a an outline that didn't function properly? Right. Right. In the end, I'd find out it didn't function properly <laughs> and I'd spend until I hated this thing. Well, yeah, I mean that happens a lot. That's okay. why, you know, and you're always you're always kind of shifting back and forth. You know, you're there are things that you are working towards, like you can see them on the horizon and you're trying to get there. And then there are also things that come out of nowhere and you fall in love with them and you just want to write them, and so you do. If you've got the mortal fear of boring people. I do. What's the litmus test? Since this is a solitary pursuit, are you willing to change a bunch of stuff once other eyes have been on it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a person with a huge ego about that kind of thing. I'm grateful for the help, you know. Um, My editor just looked at my new book that I'm writing for next year, and she told me there was an entire character that she really felt like didn't need to be there. And I immediately just was like, cool, he's gone. Because, A, she's a genius, and I very much respect her opinion about these things. But, B, you know, there's only so much you can see when you're inside it. And to get the perspective of someone who's very wise, who's on the outside of it, who can tell you this is too much, there's too much happening, um, is helpful. So I think of it as help. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is book, what, six or seven? Yes, seven. I'm losing count. This is the biggest of them. Yes. Is that because you've done six of these and there's momentum that builds? Or did something connect with this one? That's a good question. So why now? Yeah. It, okay. It is not inevitable that your books get bigger as you go. Right. And um, I think this book is bigger than the other two for kind of three reasons. The other two. The other. Did I say two? I yeah. meant to say the other. What's the math? Well, well, it's really the other five. Okay. Because we're on number seven, but I'm I'm going to connect this one with the one that came right before it. Okay. Um. Sorry. Math. Not a math person. Um. So. The first thing that happened to to kind of change the trajectory of my career was that um, I got this amazing editor at St. Martin's Press, Jen Enderlin, who really, really loved the kind of story that I write. And it's the kind of story I write is a little bit different from most of the stories out there because it's trying to balance this comedy tragedy thing. And it's hard to find a, an easy category for it. So she read my last book, which was a novel called How to Walk Away, and she loved it, and she felt like if they got behind this book and put it out there, other people were going to love it too. And so they put it out there hoping that people would read it and then tell their friends, and then those people would tell their friends, and it would be this big telephone tree, and that's that's what happened. Um, So that book actually hit the New York Times bestseller list. And that's my second reason for why this current book is a little bit bigger. It's because 
once that happens to you, it changes your landscape a little bit. Um, and then the third thing that happened was uh, my fourth novel, which was a few years back. Um, last year, actually the very same week that How to Walk Away hit the New York Times list, um, a movie production company bought the rights to my fourth novel. And so they spent the fall filming it. And they, ca- they cast Leslie Bibb and Josh Duhamel to star in it. And they filmed it in Austin. Hmm. Um, and also Wimberley and Roundtop. Is that out yet? It's not out yet. Okay. Um, but it's but it's a thing, you know. It's a real thing that has happened. Um, they've just finished editing it now, and they're starting the process where they go around, you know, looking for a distributor. But um, do you get to make a Stan Lee like cameo? I did. You did. I did. <laughs> they very kindly invited me to come and pretend to be a shopper at a farmer's market in one of the scenes. Do um, you wink knowingly? I did not. (laughs) I'm very obedient, so I just tried really hard to do exactly what they were telling me to do. I discovered that I'm a terrible actor. Um, It's much harder than it looks to pretend to be buying vegetables. It's actually tricky. And uh, at one point, um, the actors had to kind of lean into me and be like, sweetheart, you don't go until they say action. (laughs) I just couldn't get the timing right. But um, it was great. It was a great day. I got to bring my mom, and I brought my kids. We drove over from Houston, and we got to, you know, meet the actors, which made us all feel very starstruck. It was good. And in theory, they're going to send you a check at some point. Yes. Oh, they already they already have. Does writing this one, knowing that there was some buzz on the last one, does that add pressure? No, I don't think so. You know, I'm a person who is just grateful to get to do the work. You know, writing for me is the happy place. Publishing is complicated. There are lots of disappointments and humiliations and things you try to do that don't work out and ways you put yourself out there that are traumatizing. (laughs) Publishing is harder, but the actual writing is always very blissful for me. I mean, it feels a lot like being in love, writing a novel. I'm just surrounded by these imaginary people in my head who are talking and saying funny things and doing nutty stuff and I like to be around them I mean there's a reason that I don't write books about serial killers and there's a reason that I don't you know write books that are super angry and super frustrated about the world I mean I could write those books but I just don't want to you know I'm 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 in a process in my life of trying to look for joy I'm not very good at finding joy. I'm very good at ignoring it and just moving on and focusing on all the problems and the things that need to be solved. But I'm I'm trying to write books that are that savor the good things in life, the things that I tend to ignore. And so part of the reason that I I kind of protect writing as this very happy place is because that's a source of joy for me that I don't want to give up. There's a and again, this may be reductive. <laughs> okay. If Oprah was around <laughs> doing the book club the way she used to, this is the kind of thing, your themes are the kind of thing, you're the Oprah-esque <laughs> storyteller. Well, Am I nice. wrong? That's like, nice to hear. It, it feels like when I hit the part of the book that things shift, uh-huh. that's what sort of popped into my head was – this is the kind of resolution you get on an episode of Oprah <laughs> or the kind of thinking that goes on. Does that 
Okay. Make okay. any sense? Yeah. So you're saying, so you're, are you trying to say that there's like an element of psychology to it? Yeah, and, and it's the hopefulness and the encouragement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not good at those things. But you're good at writing those things. I, yeah, but I, part of the reason that I write those things is because I'm trying to teach those things to myself. I mean, I think that stories are a particularly good way for us to teach ourselves lessons, important things that we need to understand about how life works. And um, I am not a particularly overly cheerful person. I'm easily discouraged. I can get very bitter very quickly. I can, you know, I can give up with incredible speed. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm generally about one sort of dirty look in the grocery store away from just curling up in the fetal position and just deciding we're all doomed. So we're all going to die. We are. Says you. As I famously said. Um, but I, I actually married my volunteer firefighter husband, and he is this sort of resilient, cheerful, hilarious, kind-hearted human. And after being with him for 25 years, I've been kind of copying him. Because I noticed that my very dark self, when we first got together, was not having nearly as much fun as his cheerful self. And I thought, he's figured something out. I mean, I, I don't even know that he figured it out. I think he was maybe born with it. But he has this way of pulling the upside out of any hard situation. And you're sure there's not a dark, repressed side well, we've that been one get... day is going <laughs> to make itself known? I, I guess anything's possible, but I've known him since 1994, and I'm bad at math, so I won't try to calculate how many years that is. But um, he's just remarkably good at muddling through the tough stuff and finding a way to make it funny you know and 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 he makes things better he just makes everything better with his sort of sense of humor and his ability to find something good out of it and i actually read a psychology book about how people recover from trauma and this psychologist was trying to answer this question of like how do people bounce back from really horrible things um he was talking a little bit about the Holocaust. I mean, he was talking about that level of horrible. There were people who came back from losing all their family members who killed themselves. And there were people who pulled themselves together and rebuilt their lives and continued on. And he was trying to look at that. You know, it's a type of psychology called positive psychology where they're looking at, you know, instead of just looking at all the things that are wrong with right. humanity, like all the things that we are doing that are, you know, making us miserable, they're looking at things that people are getting right, and how can we copy those things and do more of those and things? And the through line was what? One of the big things in that book was that no matter how bad things are, if you can take even one tiny good thing out of what's happening, you will do better. You will bounce back faster. You know, you will cope sm more smoothly than if you don't do that. Like, basically, if you decide something has ruined your life, it's got a good chance of ruining your life but if you if you kind of put a butt in there if you say well this was really terrible it's not about pretending that things weren't terrible you acknowledge that whatever it was was horrifically bad but then if you can still turn around and pull something good out of it and say but which means you can progressively do darker things to these characters <laughs> but if there's a but 
you can still write the cheerful novels that you're known for. Yes. I have a very hard time doing dark things to my characters. I really struggle with it. And with Cassie's situation, I was very hesitant to make her backstory as dark as it is. Um, because, again, I'm always looking for that balance. You know, I don't want the darkness to subsume the light. You know, I, I think the world of literature um, has depressing kind of covered. You know, there's plenty of depressing fiction in the world. I've read a lot of it, and, you know, I, I know it's out there, and it tends to be the fiction that wins a lot of awards and, you know, gets a lot of admiration, and that's but okay. But you don't want to write depressing fiction. But I don't want to write depressing fiction because I, I am already you know, just a few steps away from feeling depressed myself, and I'm trying to cheer myself up. So for me, it's really important to be able to acknowledge the world, how it is, authentically, but then also, yeah, to pull something good out of it. It's hard to do that for me. But yeah, I don't I don't want to kill everybody off. I don't want to run the main character over with a bus in the final chapter. You know, I like stories about how people pull themselves together, how people pick themselves back up after life has knocked them down. I think that's a, a hard and brave and impressive thing to do. Do you want We're All Gonna Die or I Don't Want Depressing Fiction going next <laughs> to your name? Those are your two choices. Maybe both. Okay. We'll, we'll play with them, see which one works. Do a little slider. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, these are not Texas books. I mean, there there's a first 20% of this book is set in Austin. Yeah. But they're not what we would consider Texas books, right? Yeah, that's probably fair. Is there some Texas that, not in setting, but in tone, that inform this or inform the characters because you live in Houston? Well, I I do live in Houston, but I'm also like a fifth-generation Houstonian Texan person. My mom's family came over in the 1860s from Germany when the German king tricked everybody into coming over here and said it was a paradise and then they all got malaria you know um that's how we got Shinerbach. one of those depressing stories you don't want to write about <laughs> but a few hardy ones survived <laughs> and that's us so uh yeah so i mean my mom grew up in houston when it was a tiny little town before there was air conditioning and you know my dad's from midland and you know we're old texas people so i feel like that is definitely a part of who I am. You know, I, I went away to New York for college for four years, and then I lived in Colorado for one year, and then that's it. You know, my whole life, everything else has been here. Um, so I don't explicitly try to make them Texas-y, although um, a lot of them are set in Texas. You know, I have one that's about a woman who moves away from Houston to a little fictional Texas town called Atwater, where she becomes a goat farmer kind of by accident. That's the one that's becoming a movie. And it's got a lot of Texas in it, actually. I would say that one is maybe the most Texas-y of them all. But I think Texas is a, it's a feeling more than a specific type of plot. I wouldn't want to try too hard or like stick a bunch of longhorns in just to make it feel cowboyish. And I don't know too much about being a cowboy. You know, I I lived a very urban childhood in Houston. You know, I know about station wagons and malls and all that stuff. So I try to bring it in when I can because I, I'm very proud of being from Texas. I think it's a great state. You were talking about the depressing dark side of the publishing business. 
which most often we see as readings at bookstores where nobody comes. Yes. Have these gotten progressively bigger and better for you? And were there some dark days where you were reading to the clerks? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And clerks only. Yeah. There's no author on earth who hasn't had that happen. And it's it's horrifying. Um, You know, it's it's the bookstores want people to come and they all have mailing lists and they do their best. But it is your job as the author to get on the horn, get on Twitter, get on Instagram and get people out there. And, you know, it's hard. I get it. You know, I don't particularly want to leave the house myself you know I've got kids to raise and dinner to make and stuff going on so I understand but um yes I will say that um there is a kind of lovely snowballing that happens the more people hear about you the more people hear about you and the more people know that you've written a book or see your book in Target or see your book on the indie next list at a little beautiful independent bookstore the more um you're in their consciousness and then they come and they follow you on Instagram and your following list grows and then when it's time to get the word out about something it's much easier I mean it, it yeah it's very depressing to give a talk to an empty bookstore although I try to stay very humble about it because it's going to happen so you know if somebody shows up and they're the only person there we'll just get coffee and we'll hang out it'll be fine Bookstores are great, don't get me wrong, but is the coolest part of where you're at right now that the book's at Target? (laughs) That you can go to Target and there it is? That is pretty thrilling, I won't lie. Um, I, for a long time, uh, had little kids who were very fast and I couldn't take them to a bookstore because they would run through the bookstore and pull all the books off the shelves faster than I could put them back up and we would, whenever I tried to do it, we would have to leave in shame. So uh, Target was good because it had a cart and I could corral them in the cart and we could go to the grocery section and I could get them, you know, cookies and drinks and snacks and then put them in there and they would happily chew on things. And I could take a few moments to feel like a civilized adult and walk around in the book section. So for there were many years in there when the only books I ever bought came from Target. So it does feel like a very special place to be for me. You write Target fiction now. (laughs) Not even sure what that means. Thank you. Thank you. You should be able to easily find things you save in a fire wherever you buy books. And you'll find more from Catherine Center and a link to her TEDx talk at catherinecenter.com. You'll find us with daily coverage of all things Texas at texasmonthly.com. And we'd love it if you consider subscribing to our show, leaving a comment or rating it wherever you found us, and maybe even telling a friend. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next week.